As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace <clears throat> in vain. That's a little unsettling, is it not? Who wants to do that after all? That sounds, it sounds terrible. Receiving grace, receiving a gift in vain. How is it possible not to receive a gift and who would want to do that? One of the books that has been a good friend to me in sobriety is a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And I'm sure you've heard me mention this or quote from it before. In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, what a haunting title, right? Well, the, the author is a doctor, medical doctor who works with drug addicted people uh, on Hastings Street in Vancouver, BC. And he has multiple stories of addicts whose parents die and somehow the, the male or an attorney or an accountant or someone finds them, finds these addicts who are in the equivalent of the old Skid Row in LA, uh, in Vancouver. And they, they find them and give them a check. And what the writer of this book says is that the money is always gone, no matter the amount, within days or within weeks. One of his patient's parents died, and his patient inherited $150,000. Pretty nice, huh? Well, not only did his patient get extraordinarily high off of this inheritance, but all of his friends did as well. This was an unconditional gift, no strings attached. No one was monitoring how the gift was used. But couldn't we say that this was a gift that was received in vain? The inheritance was a gift, but no one was rendered, but one was which was rendered powerless and unprofitable. Someone's hard work, someone's legacy of generosity literally went up in smoke. One of the running themes through both of Paul's Corinthians letters is him reminding this church of the behavioral implications of the gospel, that grace is meant to be active, it's meant to be extroverted, it's meant to be visible. And he's reprimanding them in a, in a gentle and sometimes stern way for not living up to and, and out of their priceless inheritance, telling them that they're in danger of receiving God's gift in vain. Now, chapter six that we chose to read from this morning is a, is a major transition in these letters. And chapters one through five is focused mostly on what we would call the indicatives of Christianity. And then chapter six through 10 are focused on what we would probably term the imperatives. There's crossover, but generally there's this transition where in six through 10, Paul is talking about the therefores and the so what's of the gospel. And Paul, the great theoretician and systematic theologian of Christianity, is emphatic that Faith in Jesus is not just a mental assent to a list of doctrines, but it is an active collusion with Jesus and his work that expresses itself in 
our daily lives. And he is saying that if you are reconciled, if you are a new creation, there will be evidence. And this is what it will look like. Now, maybe you see things differently, but much of American Christianity, it seems to me, is is barely Christian. It often appears to be much more of a political ideology than a a spiritual movement that is based upon Jesus' actual life and teaching. And it's totally understandable to me, therefore, that the world looks on this and says, no, thank you. And within our corner of the church community and so-called reformed expressions of Christianity, we have a deep and a sophisticated, and I would say a beautiful doctrinal legacy. But often to hear those within our theological family talk about Christianity, it can often sound like little more than agreeing with a, a set of propositions. Now, we should say that it's, it's correct and it's deeply important to preach and to teach and to believe that Christianity is not foremost a behavioral system. None of us get to God through our morality. In fact, we don't get to God at all. The gospel is that he gets to us. And the beauty of Christianity, rightly understood, is that he moves into our lives upon his own initiative by his unconditional grace. But you see, lives that respond to this grace are inevitably marked by it. And Paul is inviting the Corinthians, and by extension us, to inspect their own confession. Is there evidence in your community, as well as in your individual lives, that you have received his grace? Interestingly, Paul offers up his own ministry, his own character, as a sort of ethical map of the kind of life that demonstrates God's gift hasn't been received in vain. Now, the reason that Paul needs to lay out his resume in the way that he does is that there is a lot of false information circulating in the Corinthian community, a lot of disinformation by his opponents. Sounds downright contemporary, doesn't it? There were people who were infiltrating this church and calling Paul's ministry into question. They were trying to take control and exert influence by besmirching Paul's character and his leadership. And Paul counters this by saying, hey, there is a lot of fake news out there about me. And he offers a series of corrections and contrasts. And these verses read, inside of the verses that we read, these, this particular part reads like sort of a word salad, at least in English, and sort of in the same way in Greek. It is almost exactly 140 words, and it sounds like he's just tweeting out his accomplishments. Now, think about reading Trump's tweets 2,000 years from now and trying to parse out what in the world was going on there. Is there a method, in this case, to Paul's apparent madness? 
to this word salad? Is this just bragging? Is it self-congratulation? Well, we need to know a little bit about the context. And Paul planted this church in the bustling city of Corinth, and he loved them very much, even though they were a church that really only a mother could love. Paul kept caring for them. He kept writing to them. We have two Corinthian letters. There's evidence that there was at least four and perhaps more. He continues to reach out to them, trying to visit them, even though they really didn't return the favor and often didn't return his affection. One of the enduring problems in Corinth was that they thought rather highly of themselves. They were people of of great esteem in their own minds. Paul, on the other hand, even though he had a, a fairly impressive resume, he apparently wasn't that impressive in person, and the Corinthians weren't generally taken by his resume and by who he was. See, the Corinthians were drawn to powerful orders. Like others in the Greco-Roman world, they were drawn to accomplished debaters, people of, of high status, people who sort of shifted the gravity in the room. And Paul had a lot working against him in that context. He's Jewish. He's a poor missionary and tent maker. He's apparently not tremendously articulate in person, even though he is in in letters. And according to tradition, he was short and rather odd looking. So what is his evidence that he gives the Corinthians that they should listen to him and why we should listen to him? In describing his own life, he's giving us a, a counterexample to one of the primary reasons, at least as I perceive them, that our friends and neighbor, neighbors give for leaving the church or for wanting nothing to do with it to begin with. You've probably heard sociologists talk about the, the nuns, those who don't check a religious affiliation on their census forms, and that segment is becoming more and more common. A Gallup poll just a few weeks ago told us that Christianity is now a minority group in the United States. Well, Portlanders have been checking none in their box for decades, way before it was cool to do so. And we don't just have nuns, those who are unchurched, but we're also familiar with the duns, the de-churched, those who have intentionally left the church those who perhaps intentionally moved to Portland to remove themselves from a more religiously saturated context and often from the hurts that they've received from religious people. Some of you may have been hurt because someone in a church or perhaps your church who identified with Christianity lived contrary to it and they lived contrary to it in your direction. And I think that most of us are able to recognize that Christians like other humans are fallible and are capable of making choices that are inconsistent with what we say we believe. And I think the world outside is is able to recognize that as well. 
But what really irks people is Christians who refuse to admit their fallibility, refuse to admit or act as if they don't have weakness or sin, who look down upon and judge others despite claiming a belief in a gospel that humanizes all of us and levels the playing field entirely. And for those people that have been hurt by the church, those people who are none or done, for them, for us, Paul should be a breath of fresh air because he publicly and repeatedly rejects any notion of his own moral superiority. He talks openly about his own failure admitting in other letters that he, that the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he does. This, friends, is not hypocrisy. This is honesty. He's positively verbose about his status as a fallen person who needs the rescue of the gospel. Anyone who's been on the receiving end of moral judgment from Christians, or who has been mystified by their own behavior, and it's inconsistently, should find Paul liberating. Yet at the same time, while foregrounding his own fallibility and his own failure, Paul is also able to say, look at how I've treated you. Though he sees his own inconsistency, He's also able to identify this deep and consistent stream of faithfulness. And he's able to say to the Corinthian church, look at how I've treated you, how I've consistently lived on your behalf, how I've sacrificed to offer you care and love. He's not without fault, far from it. But the gift of grace has taken root in his life, in transformative, active, and evidentiary ways. And he's able to reference his own integrity in his dealings with them. He's been changed from a violent religious Pharisee to a person whose heart has been pulled wide open, even for people who have hurt him deeply, like the Corinthians. Corinth wanted status. They wanted an orator. They wanted someone impressive, someone who with a little bit of celebrity. They wanted someone to be their pastor who had great social position. But Paul says you're looking for all of the wrong qualifications. What you should be looking for, beginning in verse 6 in the middle of this sort of 140-word word salad, What you should be looking for is trustworthiness, kindness, patience, authenticity, purity, strength in weakness, truthfulness, and a heart that is overflowing with love. Those are the kinds of leaders that we need, both in the church as well as in the home and in the political realm. Paul tells the Corinthians that he's endured 
hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger for them. It sounds kind of like a good parent, right? And who is more gifted than young children at with than young children at withholding affection when they don't get what they want? Children can turn away from a loving parent who has refused them something that they have staked their happiness upon. And they can go and pout in the corner, refusing to be comforted, refusing to reciprocate the affection that the parent is trying to bestow upon them. And that's sort of Paul's complaint in these verses. But the the complaint doesn't sound like a whiny parent recounting their resume to guilt their children into behaving. Look what I've done to you, look done for you. I've put a roof over your head. I change your diapers. I give you ice cream. And here's how you repay me. No, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us is that we're both children. We're children of an incredible father who has opened his heart wide to both of us and who has sent his son as a sacrifice for all of us. So often, even knowing those things, even believing those things, even stating them repeatedly, we often live with a scarcity mentality. We have to protect our interests because no one else is going to. We have to defend our status against the encroachment of lesser people and lesser groups. There's only so much goodness to go around. So how can we possibly be asked to open our hearts to others? But at the center of the gospel is one who opens his heart to the entire world, not expecting acclaim or fame or titles or crowns. As Paul tried to model his life on that of his Savior, it meant denying actively the status of his own citizenship and the worldly titles that it provided him, his own extraordinary education and accomplishments in the Jewish religious world. And instead, it meant foregoing all of that and enduring tremendous discomfort repeatedly, enduring stress, enduring beatings, all on behalf of his friends. For Paul, that's what opening your heart meant. For that's what it meant for Jesus. See, ultimately, Paul's entire life points beyond itself and beyond himself, beyond his sacrifice, as enormous as it was. He meant for his life and all of his sacrifice to point beyond himself to the God who opened his heart wide to Paul. He talks of the paradox of having nothing yet possessing everything because Jesus himself embodied this paradox, becoming nothing so that Paul and so that you and I could have everything. Jesus, like Paul, in opening his heart wide to you, led him to poverty, to scorn, 
to rejection, to homelessness, and ultimately to a cross. And friends, we are invited to open our hearts wide to the needs of others because Jesus first opened his heart wide to us. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe that you, with all of your power, with all of your agency, with the unlimited choice before you, would choose to bestow your love upon people as undeserving as we are, people as undeserving as Paul. And Father, we praise you that you don't love us from afar, but you love us up close, that you love us in the details of our lives, that you love us in our hurts and in our stress, in our discomfort, in our anxiety. You rejoice when we rejoice, but you also cry when we cry. And Father, we thank you for not only this depiction of true love, but the fact that you extend it so faithfully and vigorously toward us. Father, I pray that that love would transform us from the bottom up and that we would be like you. Father, I pray that we would open our hearts wide to the person that is most difficult to do so. I pray that we would learn to embrace our enemies as well as our friendly neighbors because you have embraced us at our very worst. Father, I pray that we would be a gift of love to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, and to those that we just randomly meet in our daily lives. And Father, let In Town be a gift of love to this community. And we pray that you would preserve its ministry so that we can continue bringing people into the realm of your love. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.